What's going on, everybody? William Dyer here with Dyer Conversations. We have a guest on this week, Mr. Tim Hole, with his own podcast, Dealing with Deconstruction. Tim, thanks for joining us. Man, William, I'm so glad to return the favor. You were on my show a few weeks ago talking about racism in the church, and I'm glad to be here to talk about a whole variety of subjects today. So I'm looking forward to it. Indeed, sir. Indeed. So let's talk about your channel uh, a little bit, dealing with deconstruction. Tell the people, what do you mean by deconstruction? Because you kind of have more of a bent towards dealing with Christianity and stuff like that. So tell us about deconstruction. Yeah. I mean, people, if you have been in kind of the Christian world, you have seen stories of like Rhett and Link. Um, You have seen people like John Steingard, most recently Kevin Max from DC Talk, have used language such as they're deconstructing from their Christian faith. And really what that means is they have, usually they're at the end of the process when we hear about it. They have examined the truth claims of Christianity. They have looked at some of the um, different perspectives within Christianity, and they've since abandoned their faith. So really when something is, when somebody is deconstructing, the way that I describe it on my channel, and I have a whole video on this that goes into more detail, is they're really starting to examining some of the different pieces of that. Some people deconstruct all the way, like I mentioned before, some people reconstruct, and some people, you know, kind of deconstruct into something like progressive Christianity or a liberal Christianity, where they're um, not not affirming the core tr- core tenets of traditional Christianity. Uh, So my channel is focusing on is the people that are kind of on that journey and have begun to start asking some of those deep questions and are wondering if they can hold on to their Christian faith. And I'm seeking to try to provide, first of all, a community. We have a Facebook community and the community in the chat, but looking to examine some of the questions that are causing people to really deconstruct and hopefully provide uh, a, a, a variety of answers for them. You know, it's amazing when I first got into apologetic stuff that, um, you know, you would hear these guys who had been doing apologetics for a long time and they would talk about, uh, you know, people leaving the faith and how some of those people were like, well, I had questions and uh, nobody was there to answer them. Or they would tell me like, no, 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 we don't ask questions here. And so they left their faith. And I was, you know, I was like, well, understandably so, you know, and um, one thing that I tell people sometimes is I was lucky when I first started coming to faith that I had people there that would answer because I had a lot of questions, you know, I wasn't an atheist, but it was more of a, okay, well, if this whole Christianity thing is true, how do I know it? Like, like I'm about to make this huge commitment. I need to know that this is legitimate, not just some fairy tale or something I'm doing just because, uh, you know, I grew up in America or I grew up in a quasi Christian household, as I kind of say it. So, um, I was amazed when I got into apologetics that there were actually other people like that who had questions and were basically like shunned or told you don't ask questions or, you know, basically given really bad answers. Yeah. And I'm just like, I just like want to hold them and be like, no, it's okay. Like there are answers out there, you know, don't, don't leave the faith. So um, it's so important that we continue this movement. You know, I kind of look at us as like a, maybe like a second generation of this big movement that's coming along of Christians who are out there saying, look, it's okay to have questions. It's totally fine to question your faith. We encourage that. Um, So what are some of the, I guess, more typical questions that you get, I guess, in your, in your sphere of influence that you're seeing pop up a lot? 
Yeah, they and I, I would say they're on the same lines as questions that we deal with a lot, but typically they're around sexuality and identity. There's a, uh, again, there's a few well-known, you know, kind of progressive Christians that are leading this deconstruction movement in the sense. One of them is a pastor out of San Diego named Colby Martin, and he and his book identified kind of four markers or four things that uh, most progressive Christians will believe. And I find that these are the ones that really start that process of, of questioning their, you is, know, is that the, uh, is that the guy that Sean McDowell had on? Yeah, that was the guy that Sean McDowell had on. Yeah. And so those, those four areas are uh, LGBTQ uh, affirmation, um, the rejection of white supremacy and calling out of racism, uh, the uh, acceptance of science and the uh, complementarian egalitarian. So women as equal egalitarian uh, type position. So they will hold an egalitarian type position. So typically it's, you know, most of the questions that I'm seeing as people start to deconstruct revolve around those four things we see. It, and another one might be, and this is kind of goes under that heading of the white supremacy racism, but like Christian nationalism, um, you know, things that have been largely held by the white evangelical majority when it comes to politics. They're starting to kind of push back against that. Um, there's one of the guys in our community that he was like, Trump literally did him in as a Christian. And I, I again, I scratched my head at first and I'm like, okay, that's strange. But uh, the more that I'm understanding and having conversations with people that hold that viewpoint, I'm starting to understand why and think that we need to provide responses. Uh, you know, again, something like science, when you hear the fundamentalist viewpoint of like a very strict young earth creationist viewpoint, um, that it's a complete rejection of all things science, the the people that are deconstructing in, in our community are saying, man, what, what's going on there? Why do we have to reject what seems so evident in science in order to be a Christian? Um, and again, things like the LGBTQ uh, issues, I think are, are deeply rooted and we need to find a better way to continue to have that conversation and address them than just uh, being providing sh lots of shame that goes along with that. And I think that's uh, something that's significant. So, you know, it's, we've known like from the very dawn of Christianity, there's been false teachers out there, right? Right, And on top of false teachers, let's just say there's been people who uh, maybe have had good intentions, but they're just bad teachers. Yeah. You know, they just, they maybe take a certain teaching and go way too far one way or the other with it. And um, either really legalistic or very, or very liberal, uh, you know, what we call maybe progressive Christianity today. And sometimes I wonder, like, we're in a day when you literally have all the information in the world at your fingertips. I mean, it's amazing to me. Uh, I was reading a book. Um, I can't remember which book, but it was talking about how this is the first generation who can ever fact check a preacher as he's preaching. Yep. And I was like, as a preacher, I was like, well, that's kind of scary, <laughs> you know, because that's what people are doing. Like, they're not listening to your sermon. They're going, well, let me see what, let me see what Google says. Right. You yeah. know, like as you're still preaching. Um, but we have all this information and yet you still get these people who have such a caricature or a straw man understanding of what Christianity actually is, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I have to sit back and I'm like, what, what have you been taught? Or like, what have you been listening to? And I almost wonder if we have to go back as, um, you know, as church leaders, right? Cause I think it all goes back to in the church. Like that's where your, that's where your Christian upbringing you know, should come from the family into the church and then also where Christian education starts mm -hmm. before, you know, before you get to Christian college. Like we need to get back to 
helping people learn how to think. Right. You know, like just from the get go, like yeah. here's how to think critically mm-hmm. and how to investigate for, for yourself and not just believe things. Um, are you seeing, are you seeing similar things to that where people almost like they've never been introduced to, to counter arguments to that, you know, like, Oh, Oh, well, if you don't think LGBTQ is, is should be supported, that's because you hate gay people. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, what have you been listening to? Right. Yeah. And I do think that uh, a lot of that does go back to, and again, we're, I'm summarizing a large movement. So there's definitely exceptions to the rule. But in in the 90s, when I came to Christ, when I was, you know, getting involved in ministry, uh, the thing that was really big was this contemporary music. And as a musician, someone that's been playing in worship teams and played guitar and several other instruments for a long time, that I think drove a lot of the movement into Christianity is that they were saying, look, this Christianity can be fun. Christianity can be engaging. Christianity can, you know, have this emotional element to it. That's not just, you know, the suit and tie and, you know, very liturgical kind of thing, which in essence, was a a good movement um, for some of us that felt like the liturgical piece really turned us off. But I think with that, throughout some of this intellectual side of Christianity, I remember reading a book kind of early on in my my deconstructing journey by J.P. Moreland that said, love the Lord with all your mind. And that was an interesting concept for me because my Christianity was so so much revolving around the emotions of being on stage or playing or being involved in, you know, very emotional type worship that I kind of had left my brain at the door. And so when I read that book, it really opened up that men that the fulfilled Christian life is one where we do have good reasons, intellectual reasons to believe that Christianity is true, but we also experience God in a new way through music, through scripture reading, through prayer, uh, through being in a community, small groups, and all that, um, that, that goes with that side of things. And so that really kind of helped me on my journey so much so that I now have a tattoo on my hand that's in Koine Greek that says love the Lord with all your mind because I need constant reminding that it's not just my emotions it's not just the right side of my brain that I need to engage in my Christianity I also have to engage the left side of my brain as well so I was like the exact opposite you know when I came in I had those questions and people answered them and so then that burned in me this hunger and thirst to just learn all the answers to all the questions that not only I had, but other people had, right? Because Mm. I was like going out trying to evangelize. People hit me with questions. Let me go research and let me go study it. And then, you know, over the course of the past, was it um, 18 years now, you know, 18 years of being a Christian that I've had to learn, as you said, that word experience is not an anti-biblical concept, mm, yeah. you know, that I had almost swung too far the other way where it's like, no, 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 experience is too subjective. You know, we need objective truth. And it's like, well, the objective truth in the Bible tells you come and taste of the Lord and see that he is good, mm-hmm. you know, which is an experience. Yeah. Yep. Right. So it's, that's, that's, that's what I mean about Christianity is like, you always get these, these polar swings, you know? And it's so like, if you have people over in my area where I first started, you're going to run into legalism you know, sort of a camp. If you have people over in your area, you might run into more of the subjective experience. You know, you don't really know much about the Bible. It's kind of like lies. I fear everybody just believes whatever. You might not right. even have a good understanding of who Christ is, yep. um, but you're feeling good about it. So, right. you know, it's all good. And it's like really Christianity is somewhere in the middle there. Yes. You know, yes. we always have to bring everybody back to that balance. Right. 
Um, right. Yeah, I, I, I'll expand on that a little bit, you know, with some of with some of my story. I mean, as a musician, basically right out of high school, I went on tour with a Christian band as a sound engineer, sharing the gospel and, you know, being part of a movement that, um, you know, played worship songs, played secular songs in you know, middle schools and high schools, got to interact with students and share the gospel with them. My uh, tenure in that got cut short because our female vocalist and our drummer, uh, you know, were in a romantic relationship and halfway through our tour, they decided to quit and get engaged. So instead of replacing them and kind of starting from scratch, they just dismantled a whole entire team. Well, again, that was very difficult for me. Um, you know, I, then I, I, shortly after that, I got hired at a church as a technical director, um, was there for three years. This was the church that I had gone to youth group. I'd kind of grown up several of my peers, um, you know, were still at that church, peers that were, you know, people that I'd gone to high school with because I was still young at the time, um, had a, a moral failing but I didn't think it was a fireball offense moral failing, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I don't have to go into ton, tons of detail about that. Um, but it was something that was fairly common, and it was wrong. And I can admit that it was wrong, but I didn't think that it would land me and you know the possibility to resign from the church. So again, that was confusing because I was kind of cast out at that point, and uh, you know, you're, you're not welcome here. Again very much scratching my head. Uh, Fast forward, got hired at another church shortly thereafter, worked there for several years, um, was, you know, kind of promised a certain position in the church as a worship leader to transition into that uh, position. And then lo and behold, in the meeting that I thought I was going to get that promotion, uh, going out with my boss, the executive pastor, he told me that they were actually going to hire me a boss. So instead of transitioning me into that position, which is what I've been told was I was going to do actually turn down another job at another church to, uh, you know, to stay on because I was promised that I would be put in this position in that meeting where I was told that I thought I was, man, this is it. I was actually said, well, we're going to actually going to hire this other guy and he's going to be your boss. So devastating. And then six months after that, I got let go due to budgetary constraints. So even though I had been there for five years, this guy had just come on. They said, well, he can do your job now. So we don't need you anymore. And again, was, was kind of cast out, was let go from the church. Um, Shortly thereafter, got hired at another church, uh, really felt the strong calling to be a pastor, to kind of move from a supporting role to more of a pastoral role. And the senior pastor of the, oh, let me let me add this part. So the former senior pastor of that church was still on staff. He was mentoring me and he was encouraging me like, yes, I think you should pursue this. I feel like the calling in your life to be a pastor, because when we're called to be pastors, it's not just something that that we feel it's something that has to be affirmed by other leadership in the church. And I'm, I'm, I'm fairly firm in that. I don't think you alone can say, I feel this calling and that's it. It has to be affirmed by other people in ministry in your life to help support that. So that there were several other people, not just this uh, senior pastor that, that was affirming this calling in my life. So that gave me the confidence to go to the current senior pastor of that church and express that and say, man, you are raising up leaders left and right. I know that you want to do multi-site in the future. So I would love to be on that team that's continuing to grow as a pastor. And he flat out said, that's never going to happen here. So you are not in the running. We are never going to consider you for a pastoral role in this church. We don't see you as a pastor. It's never going to happen. So forget about it. So that was that was very difficult. That kind of was the beginning of the end of my tenure at that church. I started to look for other positions, uh, ended up getting hired at a college ministry, started doing college ministry shortly after I got hired. Uh, the position that I was told that I was going to be doing um, got stripped out from underneath me because the CEO that hired me 
uh, ended up getting let go, like probably three weeks after I started. So everything that I believed was going to happen in this position was now completely different. Now, why, why am I saying all this? And I have several other stories that happened after that. Why am I saying all of this? Well, it's because I was really hurt by the church. I was, I mean, if I had, if there's anybody that has reasons to be like, I'm done, I'm out, forget this, the, you know, it was me. Um, and I'm leaving out again, a lot of the more, you know, poignant details to kind of get, sure. to, get to the point. But it was around that time that I started to really question my faith and say, man, does Jesus see me the way that these church leaders this kind of expendable, unloving, not worth taking time to, uh, to continue to disciple. It was a, a divergent from what I saw in the Bible as a discipleship model. And so that really was the point that I started to question my faith. That's when I started to read JP Moreland. That's when I started to read, uh, you know, Frank Turek and then several other books and got involved in the unbelievable podcast, started listening to that on a regular basis, got involved in several communities that are just helping me answer that question. You know, what is truth? Does God exist? And, and did Jesus rise from the dead were the three main questions that I had to answer. And if those were true, then the questions of does God love me and um, does Jesus care were, were questions that were much more easily answered uh, with those three questions in place. So I know that was kind of a long answer to your question, but no, that's I def- some I would, of my I story. Yeah, I definitely want to go back and touch on some of that because one of the things that I try to do with my podcast and the reason why I have guests on, you know, um, long story short about this, because I've talked about it other places, is I want to promote what other people in the kingdom are doing, right? I mean, I feel like that's a good posture to have towards, you know, the kingdom is like, it, look, it's, this isn't about me, you know, it's dire conversations. That's a play on my name just because, right. hey, God gave it to me. Why not? Right? Right. But, you know, I want to promote what other people are doing in the kingdom because it's all about the kingdom, right? right? And so one of the things that I want to do with that is bring people like you on who have ministry experience to talk to us about it. So other guys and girls who are in ministry can learn from the ups and downs, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe avoid some of the pitfalls or be encouraged, you know, through some of the stories. So I want to go back and touch on a few of those things. Um, It's like with the first thing, right? Uh, So in my opinion, in, in all my studying of apologetics, I believe that the hardest question to answer Generally, just in my opinion, not not every situation, but generally, the hardest one to answer is a problem of evil. Okay, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there's an, I think there's answers for it, but the problem is, is it's such an emotional answer that you have to give. It's not just an objective, like here are the facts, and this is why it's not a problem. Right, people are actually hurt by it. So, mm. in a sense, your first ministry, you are dealing with the problem of evil, and yep. I don't mean because you had a moral failure. I mean because you you know, had that moral failure, but then the the way you characterize the church responding, you're dealing with the problem of evil. You're dealing with an incorrect response from that church in the mm-hmm. sense that, sure, they should have rebuked you. Sure, they should have corrected you. Maybe even take you out of leadership. That's fine. Yeah. But their job is to shepherd you right, and to pastor you, which means you bring your goal is to bring you back into the flock and to build you back up. Right. Maybe you're a leader some, you know, someday in the future, maybe not even there because of whatever, you know, whatever issue you were dealing with, maybe it's somewhere else. But again, that's right. for the kingdom, right? Right. They go, we're going to invest in this young man. You know, we're not going to let him, you know, be captivated by Satan or whatever it is, or, or you know, be twisted by his own sin. We're going to bring him back. We're going to build him up. We're going to bind him together again. Right. So you're dealing with the problem of evil there in a real life scenario. Definitely. Um, and so that's hard. You know, like you said, that's starting to lead you down that road where you're going, what is this whole Christianity thing all about? <laughs> right. You know? And then right. I think about 
I think it was your next one. You talked about the, the expectations, right? So if you're yep. in church leadership, you need to give clear expectations to your staff and helping them to understand like, what is your position here? Mm-hmm. What is your job? Like here, here's your lane. And then having that open door of communication. Cause if they say, look, I'm enjoying my lane right now, but one day I want to go to that other lane and you go, okay, right. great. How can we help invest in you now to get you there? If it's not here, because maybe we got a guy in that lane who's really dynamic, right? That's okay. We'll right. send you out somewhere else. You know, yep. maybe that guy's about to retire in the next five years and we can go, look, as long as you follow these steps and we're charting you along the way and you have consistent meetings, you know, like, Hey, look, dude, you know, you're falling behind in this area. Uh, if you want to move in this position, we're going to really need some growth there because then at the end of the day, you have a clear understanding. You go, look, for the past two years, they've been telling me I really got to work on how, you know, on these sermon writing stuff. And I've just been missing the mark and missing the mark and missing yeah. the mark. Maybe, maybe the, the preaching the sermon is not for me. Maybe I need to go into something else that's still in the pastoral realm, but it's not preaching sermons, you know? So right. there's so many lessons. I'm like listening to you going, oh my gosh, there's so many leadership lessons that, that we can um, expound upon here. But that's the thing too, is when, when you hit these moments, it's also really awesome to see how God uses those for good. Right. Right. So talk about some of the ways, um, if you will talk about some of the ways that those things you can look back on now and go, wow, God really, um, shaped me then for what I'm doing now. Yeah, that, that is a great question. And I will start with, uh, you know, kind of summarizing a little bit of what you said and completely agreeing with you. I mean, what I saw when I read scripture in high school was this uh, loving Jesus that wanted so much to be with people and wanted to disciple, you know, the whole idea of saying, Matthew, I'm calling you, come with me. Peter, I'm calling you, come with me, was what I desired. And what I experienced in the church was the exact opposite of that. And again, that's what spurred on some of my questions. So the the good that I can say that has come out of that is now I'm in a position of influence at the current church that I work at, Image Church in North Carolina, just north of Charlotte. And I'm an associate pastor there. And I am looking back at all of my experiences in ministry on church staff and saying, we want to do things differently. We understand that there are, have been failings, just not in my life, but in other churches' lives. And we want to work to be able to be a church that is different. We want to disciple. We want to understand that people are going to fall over. We have a big el- emphasis on mental health ministries and mental illness ministries. And with that well, comes awesome. a whole bunch of understandings. As someone that when I was on staff, um, w- again, I'd love to tell these stories, but uh, there was a period of time where I would do Saturday service, work at the church all day Saturday, get there at noon, leave at eight o'clock. And I would go home and throw up because I would have such a migraine that my body would fight off with adrenaline all day. And then as soon as that adrenaline was gone, when church was over and I would leave, I would get so sick. The migraine Mm -hmm. would just hit. And within a half an hour, I would be at home and just, you know, puking my brains out. Basically, that's one of the symptoms of migraines. And, um, Lead you straight to burnout. Yep, straight to burnout. And so I ended up having to go on depression medication uh, for a while to kind of help subside some of the, or to uh, uh, 
you know, put aside some of those uh, physical things that were going on because of where I was working. And that was terrible. And I'm like, man, I don't want to ever put a staff member in a position like that. I want to be highly attuned to the things that led that uh, to that situation for me and to be able to help prevent some of those things in the future. So yeah, I mean, the the good that's come out of it is I'm trying to take those learnings. Um, I'm a certified John Maxwell coach. I've gone through the John Maxwell leadership training program, I've taken the good parts of that and tried to apply them to the leadership leadership positions I have been in since then. So yeah. Yeah. Um, that's another like category that I would say I'm, I'm like kind of personally um, invested in is like the mental health realm. Mm-hmm. One is because, you know, my wife, she um, has been working in mental health uh, in her, you know, medical field for what, eight, eight years or so since she's graduated school. And then, um, you know, with me and my law enforcement background, having gone through like crisis intervention, crisis intervention training, negotiation training, stuff like this. And then, I mean, all the time having to go to calls where you're dealing with somebody who is either suicidal, you know, or depressed or, you know, just off their meds and things are like really messed up. Or, um, I think the term is like catatonic, uh, I don't yeah. know. Just yeah. Yeah. Right. So catatonic, like I remember I, I rolled up to this, um, intersection one time and there was this girl literally standing in the middle of a major intersection. Good thing. It was a little bit later in the day. And she was just like literally staring into the sky. And I walked up to her. I was like, ma'am, ma'am. And it's like, I wasn't even there, yeah. you know? And, and, and so I'm not going to get into like why maybe we're seeing like an uptick in these in our, in our culture nowadays. Um, but I think the church has a huge area to grow in on how to handle those things. Right. right? And I'm not speaking for all churches. Cause obviously I think that would be wrong here, but I, I'm worried that a lot of churches has, have given the mentality or the, the vibe that like, we don't have anything for you here. If you're dealing with that, you know what yep. I mean? Like you just, or actually, we did. Oh my gosh, dude, we, we almost lost it. So we were at a, we were at a um, church one time and there was a, they had a couple guys on staff. One of the guys on staff was a Spanish speaking guy. So he led their Spanish worship. I was like, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. He preached a sermon in English, right? That's why we were there, but he preached a sermon and it was about um, dealing with people with these issues. And he said, he told a story how he went to somebody's house who had like, they were just laying in their bed, you know, obviously they're going through some sort of uh, depression episode. And he told them like, there are people out there who have real problems and you need to get up and have more faith in Jesus. Yes. My wife wow. and I looked at each other and we're, and I had to hold her down. Like, no, do not. <laughs> like, I was like, she's about to run up on stage and tackle this dude. Yeah. Uh, she would never do that. But, but I was like, I can't believe he just said that, you know? Yeah. And, but you see situations like that and you're like, no wonder people walk away from the faith. Like, right. If they just believe that, like, well, he's a preacher and you know, so I mean, I guess that's what the Bible says, you know, but, yep. but that's where I think we have to go back and teach people how to think critically, you know, to, and, and yep. ministers, I think the other side of that is having the humility to teach your people question me. Right. You know, like, it's okay. It's yeah. okay to question me. Cause I'm not infallible. I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. I'm not an apostle. Like, you know what? I'm preaching to you from the word of God. I'm teaching you things that I've studied, but it's okay for you to think for yourself. Yeah. Let let me, let me comment on two things there. Number one, just the, um, yeah, the ignorance, I guess. I mean, I don't mean that like in a derogatory, just the uh, uh, the uninformed. It would be okay if it was derogatory. Yeah, that was pretty bad. Uh, and again, like, 
not necessarily false, just the, not the right way to necessarily handle that, that, that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there, there needs to be a little bit more grace. If you're, if you have dealt with somebody like that in the past, please don't, please don't do that. Have, have a bit more consideration yeah. <laughs> with that. So I think, I think that's really important. I think the other thing that I'd want to comment on, which, which goes back to the de the deconstruction thing is I see a lot of people that confuse confidence based on evidence of a position with blind certainty. And that's one thing that I'm I'm working on some more, you know, videos to kind of dive into this a bit more. But that's one of the trends that I've seen is people will comment on something and say, well, we don't have to be certain or how can you be certain or man, I, I admire your certainty, but we really shouldn't have that certainty. And so you're like, okay, why, why is this? Why, why are you saying this? Because I have well evidenced positions. I have lots of scholars that I'm backing up my position with. I have, you know, commentaries and philosophers and, you know, facts and data to back up this position. That doesn't mean that I hold it blindly, but it does mean that I can't have confidence in it because of my research. And I could be wrong. I want to be open-minded that I it might not be right in my assessment. And there may be other people that disagree with me, but I would love to hear their arguments kind of being humble and open-minded in, in that stance. I think oftentimes gets Christians in, in trouble where I have a firm you know, belief that we should have the reasons at hand, we should be able to explain the reasons for the positions that we hold, which means that I, I, I'm rarely saying, I have no idea, mm -hmm. but then that often can come out. Oh, well, you're so certain you, you just got this all worked out, don't you? And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm open. I would love to have a conversation with you with why you think that I'm wrong. And, and again, that can be often seen as combative. So my goal is to say, I, I think oftentimes we do have a false sense of confidence. The Bible says it and I've read it and, you know, Matthew and that's it. There's no debate about it. I think that's different than saying, well, I've looked at the text. I've looked at the Greek or I've, you know, pulled in these scholars or this is what this, you know, long lasting tradition is saying. And this is why I hold that position and I'm open to counter evidence. So I, I think a great example of this is, um, you know, maybe like the nature of uh, hell, like, you know, what, what is the nature of hell? Well, there's some good biblical arguments for it being annihilationism. There's some good biblical arguments for it being eternal conscious torment. Um, I don't think there's good arguments for universalism, but I can remain agnostic about that and have a conversation with somebody that is on, you know, one side or the other and try to learn from them. Um, and, and even not being agnostic, I don't think you meant like in that sense, you'd probably mean more of like, look, I could say, um, I, I have confidence that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Maybe at like a 95% level, right? Yeah. But I have a uh, confidence in my view of hell in like a 60% level. Right. You know, yeah. like I'm not agnostic. Like I feel like maybe, maybe 70, right? Okay. It's like, I'm not agnostic. Like I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm probably leaning in the right direction. However, there might be something out there that would change my mind or sway me uh, you know, in, in one way or the other, or I might go, Oh, I didn't consider that. Right. Um, and so as Christians, it's okay to, to have that. We just have to distinguish between the essential elements of Christianity and the non-essential things. And so to go back to, to our two camps in my early years, my essential list was really long. Yeah. You know, and then over the years I realized, no, no, there's a, there's a very few select things that you have to like, have very certain, you know, like convictions on to say I'm a Christian, yeah. you know, and it's okay. Like God's grace can cover our doctrinal error 
in a lot of cases, not in every case, but right. in a lot of cases. Right. So I try to relate it to people with, um, you know, because we have this legal system in America, helping people to understand we convict people, you know, and solve things based off of reasonable doubt, right? Mm -hmm. Not a hundred percent certainty, but based off of reasonable doubt, you know, right. and that's how you judge your life all the time. You know, yeah. it's like, Hey, I remember Frank Turk was talking about uh, one time in his presentation. How do you know today when you get in your car and drive off that you're not going to just float off into space, right? Gravity does not, uh, you know, prescribe that this is going to happen. All, you know, gravity is just a description of what we see has pretty much always occurred, right? right? But we don't know. Maybe it'll stop working today. Who knows? Right. Well, based off a of reasonable doubt, I'm not going to be worried that my car is going to go floating off into space. You know, is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Is it probable? No, it's not probable. Right. Um, so I think that's kind of more along the lines of what you were talking about, helping people to understand, like, it's okay to have different degrees of certainty. Over right. Topics. Yeah. And, and again, being able to back up your position with, you know, the reasons that you have it, the, the scholarship that you've read or the research that you've done, um, you know, kind of in those different areas, I think is really important. I mean, you know, Bobby Conway, who's a mentor of mine, the one minute apologist on YouTube, uh, been working for the one minute apologist for a while. And now Bobby is the lead pastor of Image Church. Um, he, you know, he was just talking yesterday in an interview that we had with another podcast, where he was saying, man, one of the things that I teach my kids is to, uh, you know, keep keep the box as as big as you can, until you have done the research, basically, I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said. But you know, that list of, that you were just talking about is fairly small, other things you can do the research on, like, keep looking into them, keep examining them, don't read one book and say, this is it, this is the only position that I have, and I'm not going to look at any other positions keep exploring. And I think that's one of the things that um, I'm, I'm doing with my channel is continuing that exploration uh, into some of those non-essential things and, and even being clear the, on the essentials. Yeah. And even having the humility to say like, Hey, look, um, I haven't done a major amount of research on this, but the things I have read, it makes me lean this way. Right. You know, I've, I've done that on plenty of stuff. I think what I yeah. told you is like, you know, in, in the apologetic realm, I would say my weakest area is the scientific stuff, you know? Mm. Um, which, which is fine by me. I mean, I only have a certain amount of time to study, right. right? So I tend towards more of the historical, more of the philosophical, you know, those sort of things. I've done some research on the science stuff. I mean, I, I've read, um, you know, so who's it? Stephen Meyer's book, The Signature in the Cell. It's like a 900-page yep. book on the cell. Did Crazy. I understand most of it? Mostly not, but I got the main gist of it, Right. you know, sort of a thing, because I, I don't know the chemistry and the biology. I'm not an expert on that stuff. I'm not even that great at it. You know, some high school right. students probably smarter than me on those things. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. I leave that up to other guys, you know, who are interested in that. Right. Um, and that's why you can rest on authorities, which is part of the way on how we know a lot of stuff in life, right? Like, I don't know how far the moon is away from the earth. But I can know if I can trust an authority, you know, some scientist who has worked out, you know, whatever mathematical equation you need to work out, and they've measured it, and here's the distance. And I can say, well, look, I'm not a mathematician, and I'm not a scientist, but I can trust their authority. Uh, the number so, 283,000 miles is coming to mind, but is that, that what could, it is? I, I, I could be wrong about that. So, 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 so speaking about these things, right? Like um, when to have certainty, when not to have certainty. Uh, I know that you're really active on engaging with comments on your, on your different, you know, YouTube videos and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, 
what do you find that people respond when you like when they challenge you and they're you know or say something like you're dumb or you don't know what you're talking about or you're misconstruing this or blah blah, blah and you go look I presented the evidence in the video and here's my sources. What, like, how do they respond to that? I think it depends on some of their starting positions. So I, we're going back to the problem of evil. There was somebody on my channel, um, the banjo atheist, I think if, if I remember correctly, um, I like it. And, uh, he, he was, he was talking about the evidential problem of evil and, and real quickly, the evidential problem of evil is when somebody looks at the amount of suffering and they make a subjective, you know, kind of judgment on whether or not it is probable or possible for a perfect being to have created this world. It's a little bit different than the intellectual problem or the logical problem of evil. It's a little bit different than the emotional problem of evil. It's the evidential problem of evil. And so we were going back and forth on that. And I was, you know, linking other videos, uh, you know, linking other books, looking other resources that I have read. And he was just like, look, you, you just don't get it. And I'm like, okay, fine. Maybe I don't get it. Like, I, and I kept inviting him on. I'm like, I would love to have a conversation with you, you know, commenting is is uh, not necessarily my forte uh, doing arguments via texting and, and stuff like that isn't isn't as easy as it is just talking and having a conversation so i'm willing to say yeah i i don't know but i'm i need that other person to kind of give me some resources even in the most recent video that i did where i responded to uh what i consider the three best uh arguments for same-sex relationships monogamous lifelong same-sex relationships i responded and gave the reasons that i don't think they're convincing to me at the end is what i said was i'm still reading and learning on this if you have other resources to leave them in the comments and let me know and i'll continue to check them out now again i've read several books i've watched several videos i've watched several debates i've listened to people on both sides of the conversation and i'm fairly confident in my answers based on the research that i've done but that doesn't mean new information um you know couldn't persuade me but i'm always interested in looking at those different resources and so i want people to continue to give them to me so i'm totally fine with that when i first started um branching out to read other like non-christian sources in the sense of like here's what like the first hand sources are saying against because you know you learn from apologetic people here's yeah. what they say here's what we respond with yeah. and i said okay well let me actually go myself and see what they say so i know that we're not misconstruing or creating a straw man argument right right and like i went and read like richard dawkins the blonde watchmaker and sam harris's books and Christopher Hitchens. And I mean, I was like, these things are garbage, you know, and I'm not like, I understand now this was years ago. I understand now there are way better atheist books out there than those right. books, like yeah. way more challenging. They're just not as popular because of whatever reason. But at the time I'm like, yeah, but these are what a lot of popular atheists are reading, you know, and saying, this is why I don't believe Christianity because Richard Dawkins says this. And I'm like, this is like the lamest argument ever. You know, mm -hmm. like you actually like on your field, you actually have better arguments than this. <laughs> you know, it's like I, like nowadays I want to take people to those better arguments. Um, but yeah, like those YouTube comments, I, I engage some with them, you know, but I try not to waste my time too much with people who I feel like are just filled with hate. You yeah. know, the people, there have been a, a, a handful of people who have hit me up and like, hey, you know, I really appreciate what you're saying here. I disagree with you on this, this point. I'm like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll respond to you. You know, you're being respectful, but yeah. man, some people are just like, you're stupid and you should hate yourself uh, and you're wrong. And I'm like, great argument. Great argument, sir. You know, <laughs> like, as yeah. people kill me. So talking about your uh, podcast on marriage, um, I'll link on this video, okay. that episode, so people can go check it out. But 
what do you think was like some of the main reasons why you, after studying it, you were like, nope, I'm still, I'm still sticking to traditional marriage. And maybe that's jumping into another video you've done. Yeah. So I, I did just release kind of my response to that. And, and I, I do think there's, we have to be clear about who exactly we're talking to. And so in that particular video, I was describing these are the, these what I think are someone that holds the Bible as authoritative for the day. That doesn't necessarily mean they think it's an errant, but they believe that it's authoritative. Um, and they're trying to live in line with that, but they still believe that monogamous same-sex lifelong relationships, um, you know, i.e. same-sex marriage, if you will, is viable. It should be, you know, uh, what we're seeking after. This is maybe someone like a Matthew Vines argument. Uh, again, Colby Martin, someone I've mentioned in the beginning, he wrote a book uh, arguing something similar called, you know, the unclobber passages. He was trying to, there's the clobber passages, if you will. I think one of the reasons that uh, it's not convincing for me is because there is this longstanding, you know, argument right from Genesis, right from the beginning. And there's specifically a, a word that uh, called, the word is, the Hebrew word is uh, kineko. And it, when you break it up into its parts, you have the kineg, which is the beginning, the, the, the prefix, which says like, and then you have uh, the, the middle section of the word, um, which is basically his, so like Adam. And then the last part of the word, which basically means complement or opposite. And so when you put that word together in Genesis 2, not only do you have this uh, sameness, because it, he, you know, the Bible verse talks about, um, you know, Adam went around and he you know, looked at all the animals and didn't find a suitable helper. But um, so he was looking for a suitable helper, which was an Eve. And so my, my, the question that I had when I was kind of hearing this argument from the uh, same-sex attracted side was, are you saying that God wasn't a sufficient you know, being to have a relationship with Adam. And that seems extremely bizarre to me, because if God is not sufficient enough for us to have a relationship with, then who is, right? Like, mm -hmm. so I didn't think that could be the the answer. I don't think starting with the idea that God was not sufficient for Adam. So there must have been some other element that God um, didn't fulfill that needed Adam. And that would be the sexual intercourse to be able to uh, fill the earth. And that was one of the commands. Again, God could have chosen to fill the earth with people in several different ways. He could have kept drawing people out of the dust and breathing life into them. But the way that he chose to go about it was through this idea of sex and sexuality. And so that the, the Hebrew word kineko, when we look at it in that context, we see that there is still very much this sameness of humanity, um, but but differentness in sex. And so I think that undergirds a lot of the the then conversation that continues to happen in that. So the other arguments that I deal with is, uh, particularly I think the most difficult one is concessions on divorce. Let's just be honest, over the last you know, 50, 100 years, the church has you know, made some pretty um, unwarranted uh, concessions when it comes to divorce, reasons for couples divorcing that um, are probably unbiblical and unwarranted. And You mean that the church is influenced by the culture that it's in? And yeah. Compromises truth and compromises truth. What? Yeah. No, yeah. get out of here. Get yeah. out of town. Yeah. And so I think that that's one of the arguments is like, hey, look, you, you're willing to make these compromises on divorce, but you're not willing to then make the compromise on same sex marriage. How come? And so I think while the principle 
uh, is correct, that the church does have some leeway in there to be able to make concessions for certain, you know, examples of, you know, let's say physical abuse or uh, something along those lines, some pretty extreme examples other than just um, infidelity. Uh, there's a scholar, David Instrom Brewer, which has written on this subject, which he raises some really interesting points about whether or not Jesus was saying that infidelity was the only reason, because we do have Paul mentioning later in Ephesians, I think it's in Ephesians, um, something about, you know, being able to leave your, leave your spouse. Yeah, First Corinthians, leave your mm -hmm. spouse if they're uh, an unbeliever and they've kind of, you know, abnegated their response, their marriage responsibilities well, and that's, as that's well. That's what I was going to get into is like... Um... I find it I find that passage extremely interesting. Right. Because I think there's an element there almost like um a step before divorce. Right. You know, yeah. right where it's like, yeah. hey, you know, and this is what you know people bring up the whole abusing all the time because I obviously it happens, right? Um I'm I'm pretty familiar, you know, in in my job uh, right. dealing with domestic violence. And you know, to tell to tell a female cuz most of the time it is female, right? I'm not being sexist here. Um yeah. I have arrested men or I'm sorry, I have arrested women for women. beating up their husbands. Right. So I'm not sexist, but, you know, most of the time it's, it's women who are the ones who are being abused to tell them, hey, sorry, the Bible says you need to be faithful to your husband. Well, yes, faithful. But does that mean that you have to stay in a house and get beat up or allow your children to get beat up? I think that's so foolish. Right. You know, to, to, say, that, yeah. to say that the Bible teaches that. No, it doesn't teach that. And I think First Corinthians 7 gives us this perfect situation where it's like, hey, look, it's OK to remove yourself for a time. Yeah. Now, does that mean every time you and your husband get in an argument? No. You know what I mean? Does that right. mean like you use that as some sort of trump card to be like, oh, I'm leaving for a time, you know, until you get your stuff together? No. Right. We're talking about these extreme cases. So, yeah. yes, continue. I just wanted to throw that in there because it's no, like, no. you know, this is where, again, it's like certain things are taught by people. And it's like, God, oh, that's not necessarily what the Bible says, but that, you're making people think that's what the Bible says. And then they're rejecting Christianity because of it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, just as just as you were saying, there are some concessions where it's like, what exactly is abuse? What constitutes a legitimate uh, abuse situation? Because, you know, sometimes the charge of abuse could could be, you know, fabricated or or mm -hmm. at least um, puffed up, which is not really there. And again, I'm I'm willing to take the abuse claims at face value and then continue to look in them. And I think that's where building relationship, pastoral care, um, you know, the mental health thing is really important. But I don't think because we have such a um, longstanding argument, I was going to say tradition, longstanding argument based on other cases that same-sex intercourse is wrong, that we can then extend it that far in, we can extend that concession that far into same-sex relationships. And I, I think, uh, to be honest, I think the church has done significant damage um, in several different areas when it comes to how we communicate, how we love, how we um, address the, you know, same-sex uh, conversation and the same-sex debate and even the LGBTQ going across the whole entire spectrum, that sometimes we have egg in our face when we do it. And so my approach is trying to be, um, as loving and understanding as we can, as we continue to have those conversations and continue to build bridges and build relationships uh, with other people that are in that group. Do you see um, a shift or maybe a um, completely different mindset between the older, gen I don't mean older, like I'm not trying to like criticize the older generation by any stretch of the imagination here. I'm just saying like, just looking at it factually, a shift of thinking regarding, um, you know, the LGBTQ from the older generation to this generation. And what I mean by that is 
for the older generation, granted, this is something that was like, you know, like they didn't even talk about when they were, you know, when they were in their twenties and thirties, like this was very non-social normal. Like, you know, it's weird. It's like, you know, but now kids are growing up and it's like the norm. Yeah. Right. I mean, gay, homosexual, lesbian, transgender, you know, like all these different things, genders fluid to them, that's normal. Mm -hmm. And so um, do you think that the, that's what has led to like a level of confusion maybe for the older generation and the, and thus they don't have any, maybe not, they don't have any, they have not done the best job of giving wisdom and guidance to the younger generation on how to handle this. Yeah. I, I yeah, I would agree. So I, I again, I think two things there, I, I saw a study recently that said something along the lines of 28% of Gen Z or so the, you know, the people that are born, I think 95 through 2015 are considered Gen Z at this point, identify on the LGBTQ spectrum. So 28, I think it was 28%. And then in the millennial group, which I believe is you and I, it was something like 9%. And in the, the group that's above us, my brother's generation, uh, my sister's generation, it was something like 3%. And then the boomers and the greatest generation is something like one or less. It was kind of like the 1% with the little, you know, mm -hmm. kind of error bar. Um, so you just, you see that transition in culture as things become more and more acceptable that you see larger and number, larger amounts of people kind of uh, moving into that spectrum, if you will. So I think to answer your question specifically, yes, it, we, uh, I would say like my parents' generation, my parents are almost in their 80s at this point, they would see it as you are deliberately and willingly uh, sinning or doing something wrong, countercultural and counter God's moral law. It's purely a choice for you. You are freely entering into this when you know that you shouldn't be. Now, I think there has been some research that has come out, not that it is not that you know homosexual desire is fully biological, but that it is less fluid than we than we thought it was in initially. And so I think that that is. What do you, you know, mean by less fluid? Well, so there is uh, some research that it's um, you, that you can't pray the gay away, which is a, a common phrase again in the generation above us. That oh man, we just have to you know put people with the you know, pray for them. And we have to, you know, put them in, you know, the exodus, you know, camps or whatever, mm -hmm. they go to get them in counseling, and then then they will no longer be, uh, you know, gay, right, that'll just go away. Um, and so I, I, I think that while Jesus can and has, um, through redemption, uh, removed or completely, you know, changed someone's sexual desires, I don't think that that always happens. I do think there, there is a category of people that truly love Jesus, that are saved, that are redeemed, but just like all of us still struggle with that, um, still struggle with that desire. And some of them remain celibate forever or for their, for their lives. And some of them just continue to struggle. Some of them uh, are, do get into uh, heterosexual marriages because uh, it is waned so much that they feel like they can do that. So I think that's a little bit of a different perspective um, that you know, someone in the 50s or even in the 40s would have had. And so the way that the previous generations have dealt with those issues have been different. And that's why I think we, we need to rethink some of that. So you're telling me that just like an alcoholic who repents of his alcoholism and realizes that be, being a, you know, an alcoholic is wrong and lives a life 
you know, as a teetotaler because he realized he struggles with that and fights it every single day of his life. He's redeemed if he believes in Christ. So a person who, you know, was a practice in homosexual goes on that same path, right? Like to me, and maybe because I am a millennial, like that's not that hard of something to understand and believe because I think that's what the Bible teaches us about sin in general is obviously it's, it's more of a nuanced thing. There's so many uh, different pathways that we could go down and talking about the different influences and the variables and all that sort of other stuff. I get it. And I'm not trying to cast aside those variables right now, but there's certain things that like as Christians, I think we can't get too far away from. And, you know, obviously I, I believe that the Bible very clearly teaches that um, any sexual activity outside of the marriage bed is sinful. Right. Okay. I don't, I don't really find that to be controversial in the sense of this is a theological position. Now, you, you know, as a person might find that controversial just in general, but as far as like what the Bible says, like that's, that's what people have understood the Bible to believe for a couple thousand years. Um, right. So with that being said, you know, then you move into the question of, well, how do you give counsel to somebody who's like, look, I have same sex attractions, or I feel like I'm a female in a man's body or any of that sort of stuff. See, those are conversations the church has never had in America. Let's say that maybe they've had it in other cultures. I don't know. Right. But in America, we haven't had. So that's where I'm looking at, like, our generation is trying to figure this out. And I don't think good answers have been given in the past, which is, like you said, has left some egg on the face on just the church in general, because pray the gay away or something, you know what I mean? Something like that. Like, oh, if you're having these same sex attractions, it means that you're not really living the Christian life or things like that. Have you ever um, read the read the book by um, Jackie Hill Perry? I don't think so. It's called I hope I don't get this wrong. Gay girl. Good God. Mm -mm. All right. If you're interested, check it out. Listen to Audible. I listened to it on Audible. It was fantastic. I cannot think back to a single point that I disagreed with her. And she Mm. was a full-blown, full-blown lesbian. I mean, like not a Christian, full-blown lesbian, living that life, right? And obviously she, you know, came to Christ later on in her life. And she talks about this. One of the things that she said in that book that I thought was absolutely fantastic is that God does not call the gay person to be straight. He calls them to be holy. Exactly. And I was like, I just like threw my hands in the air and I was like, that's the one liner. Amen. Jackie Hill Perry, you know, and and I really believe that that's a, that's really a good message for us as a church. Um, It's a compassionate message. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's an understandable and reasonable message. I think it's also a biblical message. Totally. You know, like, Jesus said, not everybody's going to be married. Some people are going to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. And that's, that's okay. For whatever reason, if one of those reasons is because of same sex attraction, that is what it is. Right. You yeah. Know? And, and I, I think the important thing that I typically stress in this conversation is, man, I cannot remember an evangelistic conversation that I've had with somebody um, who was on the LGBTQ spectrum where I started with that issue. Like I would always start with, their beliefs about God, their beliefs about Jesus. Like I would always start there and, and, and progress. I mean, so, you know, for example, there's um, a guy who cuts my hair and uh, one, we had a great conversation one day because he had just finished cutting a, an, a Mormon's hair, an elder, one of the guys that was on mission. And 
most people know that when you see the guy, the young guys in the white shirts with the black tie and the black pants on, that they're Mormon missionaries. And so we had a great conversation about what Mormons believe. And I kind of left it hanging and said, next time I come, we'll talk about what I believe. And he said, man, I'm really looking forward to hear that. And so it, it, it provided an opportunity for us to be able to just have a conversation apart from that. It, mm-hmm. We didn't need to be able to discuss that. It was, it's not an issue that um, I'm going to bring up first and be like, because I, even if he was like, well, sure, this is wrong and I'm just not going to do it anymore. Right. For whatever reason, if he hasn't accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and savior, I don't think we've done necessarily what we should have done in that conversation or with that relationship. So I think that's part of it for me is I would just start with the gospel and continue to work from there. Do you think that this is going to be the hardest issue for Christians? I would say, I mean, apologists, evangelists, I, you know, I kind of lump it all into one because if you're going to evangelize today's culture, you're going to have to know some apologetics, um, at least the basics. So if we're trying to spread the message of Christ, do you think that this issue, the, the whole sexuality, let's just couch it as that is going to be the hardest issue for us to deal with? I'm going to say no. Um, nice. Okay. And so I, I don't know if you expected that answer, but I was going to say no. I think I, I really didn't have anything I was expecting. I was really interested to see your thoughts on this. So go yeah, ahead. I would I would say again right now in our current culture and probably for the next you know one to three years at least, probably the more significant issue is going to be um, politics, Christian nationalism, and and Trumpism because we have you know there is there is a Christianity is dealing with a wake uh, after Trump. Um, that I think that is more pressing on us right now. And I think this plays into it, I think is kind of underneath that heading. But when we talk about the, the church love, so let me just, this is a conversation that I've been having recently, you know, love to get your insight on it. So typically us white male evangelicals, if you will, even if you don't want to wear that label, we've automatically lumped ourselves in people that are watching this are already like you, you're already in that category, whether we mm-hmm. like it or not, are going to say that what we tend to focus on in our ministry is saving the individuals, preaching the gospel, um, just like I talked about, saving the individual. And while you and I would both agree with that message, that's kind of what gets us in the camp of evangelical. But we have to acknowledge that there are some uh, things going on in our society which still need us to be able to speak into and still need us to uh, redeem at a a Christian church level that may not necessarily uh, wait for everybody that's involved to be saved personally and then find that redemption and continue to work towards that. So what I mean by is if we have the opportunity to serve and love a homeless person or uh, provide a shelter for or something along those lines, you know, working with the poor, um, we should be doing that even if we haven't saved somebody's soul. And I think what happens oftentimes, particularly in the white evangelical church, is we focus a whole lot on personal salvation and sanctification, which we hope will lead to a change culturally. And we kind of forget dealing with the larger cultural issues because we say, no, 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 we're focused on the individual salvation. And I think that we need to start adjusting some of our strategy to make those more equal. And so I, I would say, you know, white evangelicals have focused a lot on individual salvation and less on kind of what's going on socially, social justice, if you will. And I think we need to start to bring some of those in line. I would see that as almost more of a focus, more of a threat. If we keep going in this direction, I think we're going to become irrelevant because the cultures are going to say, look, you guys aren't doing anything at all. And why would I, why would I believe anything you say? 
Yeah, or why would I want to be part of what you're doing? Yeah, why don't you important? Doing? Right. Yeah. Here's what I would say. So in my interactions with um with young people, you know, I was a youth minister for a while. Um, you know, and obviously I still I'm still in the church. So I, you know, I deal with young people as well. Um, dealing with young people, reading about Generation Z and stuff like that. The one of the th- points that I get from them is they're looking to make a difference that has global effects. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it stems from obviously, you know, we can see what's going on in Russia right now in the blink of an eye. You know, we don't have to wait for next week's newspaper. We don't have to wait for the ambassador to come back and tell us like, we see it on YouTube. We see it on Facebook. You know, it's all over Reddit and these sort of things. Um, and I'm, I probably sound old because there's probably new cooler means of social media platforms that I'm unaware of, but whatever. TikTok and what, yeah. Yeah. I'm not part of TikTok. Um, Me either really. <laughs> so I hope it goes away. So, um, you know, I, I see that they want to make those, those big cultural changes, which I think is a good thing. And this is where I agree with you. I think the church is dropping the ball where we have the message that says, here's how you make the big social justice change. Now I would only caveat that with, I think the phrase social justice has been hijacked by people in our culture and have been, and has been given a very false and bad definition. Right. So I, whether you want to use the term or not, that's neither here nor there for this conversation, but just to say, do you want to help change the culture and bring in like just having the conversations? What is justice? Right. You know, like, what do you think justice is and where does that come from? And those conversations all lead back to the question of God. Um, so I think the church has a fantastic opportunity to reach the younger generation by coming at it like that and saying, look, we're the ones who have the, the, the real understanding, the right worldview to see here's the problem that's going on in the culture. Here's the injustice. And here's some things that we can do, but not just talking about it, actually doing it. And this is something that we kind of finished off the podcast when I came on your channel Mm -hmm. of talking about is like, what is the church doing, you know, to, to stop, the abortion clinics, what is the church doing to help in the mental health field? Right. And, yep. and, and, and helping those people to actually get um, not just a, you need more faith counseling, you know, but actually biblical counseling from people who are medical professionals who understand mental health, but also have a Christian worldview. Totally. What are we doing in that area? What are we doing in, in the broken homes, the single, you know, the, the single parent households, right. which statistically, and this is undeniable statistically is the thing that is a guarantee, almost a guarantee for the children to become criminals, bad in college, get locked up, fall into drugs, fall into prostitution. Like why? Because there's only one parent in the household, right? You just go look up the research, you yep. know? Um, so what are we doing for those things? Where are the men in the church? You're about to get me on a hobby horse right here. Where are the men in the church who are standing up saying, look, I'm going to be a leader, not right. just for my family, but also for the larger culture here, you know, for the fatherless totally. sort of a deal. So yeah, I agree with you there that it's a, it's a both and, you know, we need to totally. focus on the individual, but we also as a church corporately need to be confronting the culture on these issues in a real way, because here's what I always tell people, our young people, are being inundated with voices yes. from the culture mm-hmm. and they don't know what to believe, right. and, but, but they have a heart of compassion, which is good, which is good. Right. And they go, well, I want to make a difference. I want to help people. I want to love people. The church is silent. And these people are saying, here's the way forward. Okay. Well, if those are my only options, I'm going to pick one and go with it. Right. You see what I mean? And, and so that to me is frustrating because it's like, 
you got to start talking church. And I think, I think the problem is that, that a lot of church leaders get afraid because mm-hmm. we live in a cancel culture that, man, if we stand up and say X, Y, or Z, we're going to get just run through the mud. Yeah. But that's where you need to have a backbone. Yeah. I don't know. I, what do you think? I did spend some time earlier in this conversation kind of knocking on some of my uh, previous church experience, but I will say this, there was a, a church that I worked for that had a benevolence ministry that was just off the charts amazing. And the, it was in a, a town of about 10,000. So kind of the immediate town was about 10,000. It was a college town. And every year at Christmas, they would uh, request an offering that was just for benevolence. And we would have somewhere between, you know, 1,500 and 2,500 people come to our Christmas Eve celebrations, depending on the year. And those people would give about $100,000. I think the numbers range from 85000 wow. to 120000 while I was on staff at the church. And that money went directly back into the community to be able to pay electric bills, to be able to do car repair bills, to fix a washing machine, to um, stave off... Uh, you know, eviction from, you know, someone's house or to, you know, make a past mortgage bill right because of a loss of job. And one of the things that I loved about their benevolence ministry in in total was that they uh, prioritized budget coaching. And so, you know, if you wanted funds from this benevolence, they were more than willing to give it to you. There was no cap on what you could request. All they asked is that you would bring some of your other bills and your finances with them so that they could provide a coach for you to get back on track. And we saw so many people uh, get back on track in their finances, you know, due to this. And they would walk with, you know, those families for months and months and months, helping them with some of their bills so that they could get back on track. To me, that's that's what I'm talking about when I'm using the terms like social justice in a sense where they're saying we realize there's uh, inequality in our um, in our community that people aren't able to pay bills for whatever reason. And we want to help remedy that not only with dollars and cents, but we want to continue the, the discipleship process so that uh, it doesn't happen again in six months and that you can then pass it on to your kids, pass good budgeting on to your kids so that they're not in that same position in the future when, when they grow up and, and become professionals or whatnot. So um, in one of my critical race theory videos, you know, I've been getting a lot of comments, of course, right. From people on those things. Most of them are just mean people who want me to, um, you know, go take a long walk off a short pier sort of a deal, <laughs> um, which, you know, whatever, I don't care. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so like I said, some people have had some some relatively decent comments. So I try to respond to those people because I want to be respectful for them taking their time to watch my stuff. You know, I want to respond back to them. And so one guy hit me up and I forget the exact like original comment, but, you know, it was it was one of those things where he made a bunch of assumptions about who I was and my beliefs. And I was like, you know what, let me respond to this guy. So the way I responded was about, um, it, it was like, no, I don't believe that, um, you know, all things are equal for all people. I do believe that there are actually some inequalities um, that are in our culture and some things that need to be addressed and fixed. Um, things that hinder people from being able to obtain their goals and dreams. Mm-hmm. And it really threw that guy, like he responded in such like a, I guess, a more positive light to me after that. He was kind of like, right. oh, oh, I didn't expect you to answer that way. You know, and but that's the problem is, right? It's like we... Sometimes as Christians need to be humble enough, right? Let me boast about uh, how humble I was being in this real quick. So uh, (laughs) that's a joke on myself, but we need to be humble enough to be able to like take those shots that people want to give us, you know, the the hate that they want to give us and and reverberate it back with, you know, grace-filled responses. I mean, isn't that what the Bible says that we're supposed to in our conversations with with grace? Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw that positive response from him. Now, 
you know, if you want to talk about the conversation of inequality, you know, you have to distinguish between inequality of opportunity and inequality of outcome. Right. You know, that's the big thing right there. Uh, you know, there, that our culture has not understood that distinction. And, and that's kind of like the, the crux of the debate. But there are some inequalities of opportunities, I think, from policies that we've instituted that one thing I was telling you about is like generational problems. Like you mm -hmm. just said, if I'm bad financially, I'm going to pass that on to my kids because they're not going to have as much growing up. And then maybe they learn principles that are bad and then they repeat that same process. It's just not going to be good. So this is where that social justice movement in the positive light comes in as Christians, where we take the biblical principles that we have learned and then we pass them on to people to help create those changes. Right. Yeah. You know, so what do you think, um, what do you think is some of the best ways that we can reach Gen Z? You know, cause I think with every culture, with every generation, we have to kind of switch up how we're, how we're reaching them. You know, the message is always going to be the same, but we have to switch up how we're reaching them. Um, so what do you think is the best way we can start reaching these, these younger generations? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm not entirely sure, but I can give you what my thoughts are on it. So there was a really good book by James R. White or James E. White about um, Gen Z, which is a fantastic read for anybody that's interested in this. But one of the st one of the stats in that is that um, some of our Gen Zers have a lower attention span than hmm. a goldfish, you know, and that's not being derogatory. <laughs> it's just, it's the facts. They can yeah. scroll through their TikTok feed or their Instagram feed so fast and collect so much information. Like you were saying, they can fact check stuff right in there, you know, out of their pocket. Um, so I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to provide opportunities for them to, uh, you know, to kind of grab their attention, but to then also be truthful. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're seeing a growth in YouTube ministries, such as yours, hopefully mine, one minute apologists and others, um, because that's where they're starting to get their news. My kids have no concept. My kids are six and 10. They have no concept of like channel surfing, right? They don't channel surf at all. They most primarily watch YouTube if they're going to watch TV or they watch like Netflix or Disney where everything is on demand. So the church needs to rethink how they're, uh, how they're doing church. I don't know if the 40 minute message is going to be something that are, that is going to continue on for years and years and years. Um, you know, small groups around tables where you're talking for 10 or 15 minutes and then you're asking the people at the table to respond and have a conversation. Then you're doing another point and then they're talking and responding could be a model that Gen Z would gravitate more towards uh, in addition to, to uh, engaging the community a bit more, which is something we've already talked about. I think having those elements in our uh, ministries are really going to uh, help attract that and authenticity and answering some of these questions, being ready to engage, say, bring your questions. Let's talk about them um, is really helpful. And that's one thing that I've appreciated about, you know, Bobby and his teaching at the end of messages. He's just like, what kind of questions do you have? Just, you know, just to, like yell them out and we'll see if we can engage with them from the message today. I think that's a great strategy going forward. So those would be the few things I would say. Begin. Let, I mean, even if you hold a dogmatic position, which is fine, I think in some cases, right? Like God is real. Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that's yeah. dogmatic if you want to put it in that way, but right. holding those, but without doing it in a dogmatic way, I think is going to be important mm -hmm. um, because people are going to have these sort of questions. And like I saw a video the other day of a, forgive me, I don't remember, and I'm not trying to be offensive, a boy or girl, I can't remember which one, who transitioned to the other, right? 
Okay. A girl yep. thinks she was a boy or a boy who thought she was a girl, whatever. Right. And did, you know, didn't have gender surgery, but started taking the hormones and, and started, you know, trying to transition. And this person said that after like a year and some change of doing this, they're now transitioning back. And they, I mean, they even admitted like, Hey, my voice is messed up. So I think it was a girl who transitioned to a boy. Yeah, I think it was a girl transitioned boy. And then she went back. Yeah. It's so you know what I'm talking minutes. about? Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was so interesting because I was like, man, I didn't even think about the fact that we as a church are going to have to deal with that. Yep. Like, okay. Okay. You, you took that step. You went down the transition road, right? Doesn't mean you're lost forever. Uh, here's somebody who's coming back and now like, how do we as a church, like counsel them through this and give them grace and love and help whatever way we can, if they want, you know, to come to Christ and doing that in that grace filled way, unlike, you know, maybe some of the responses in moral failures, like, you know, like you experienced Mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, I messed up, but good gracious, you know, this is supposed to be the place that I get the love and the grace and the support, not the rejection and the shunning and the right you know, those sort of things. So it's going to be an interesting time for sure. Yep. Yep. And and the church has got to be open to changing the way they do things. It's okay. It's okay. You know, like no sacred cows here. It's okay to change things up as long as the message doesn't change. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's where people need to be. So uh, Tim, let's do this. uh, Dealing with deconstruction, right? That's the YouTube channel. That's the YouTube channel. Yep. All right. where, Where are other platforms are you on go ahead and promote it um that's basically it uh underneath and in my description of all my youtube videos there is a link to a facebook group so if you want to join the conversation uh that is happening on there there's you know just under 90 members right now on that facebook group and that's really where a lot of i would say the the best conversation happen is in that facebook group youtube is pretty much one way uh, I do get ideas from comments and stuff like that. But that group is where I ask questions, say, hey, I'm I'm thinking about doing a video on this. What do I need to cover? And people will, you know, kind of feedback. Some people will leave their own. I'm dealing with this. How would you answer it? Kind of things there. So that's really where the community is growing. And so you can, you know, go over to youtube.com slash dealing with deconstruction, subscribe, and then find one of the videos and head on over to the Facebook group and join the group. Cool. And if you are in, you said Charlotte, aren't you? You said you're near Charlotte, right? I'm in just north of Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in that Charlotte area, Image Church. Image Church. Yep. You can imagechurch.live is our website. You can check out, uh, you know, some past messages there and you can, you know, see when we have services. It's a little bit unique. And I only say that because we're, you know, kind of renting a facility right now and there's one week a month where we cannot be in the facility. So we try to do some alternative thing. Um, so, the website's the best place to go to see what the current, you know, whether the week is, whether that's a Sunday that we're not going to be there or whether that's a Sunday that we're going to be there. Outstanding. All right, people go check out Tim and his dealing with deconstruction. Continue to ask your questions. There are answers out there. Tim, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, William. I appreciate being on.